Go ahead and open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel tonight, we're going to be here in a few moments in chapter 16 and in chapter 17. I will say before we get to the introduction for this message that it helps us if we understand our Bible in the historical context of the Word of God. So many times we read our Bible and we know the outcome because we've heard the story since we were children. But we'll get to that here in just a moment. I remember it was about 2008, maybe 2009, I was flying out west. I was going to be in two churches in California and two churches in Arizona. And I was going to rent a car and go from church to church. And because the churches were flying me out there, I I did not think it was right to take my wife and daughter and have them pay for two more tickets. And so I was going to go by myself. Now that's happened over the years. I personally believe that evangelists and any preachers that travel ought to take their family with them as much as they absolutely possibly can because I may be saying something here and there might be someone here that can can disagree with me and tell me afterwards that'd be just fine I don't know of a single story of a man who traveled with his family that went into immorality I can tell you dozens of stories of men that traveled without their family that went into immorality but I don't know any of the uh, stories where people travel with their family so we traveled have always traveled as a family and so uh, as, we've traveled, uh, as we've traveled over the years, a few times I've had to go by myself. And sometimes that's been for several weeks on end. And so this was going to be four weeks. I was going to be away from home, away from my wife and away from my daughter. That was not incredibly unusual, although it was certainly not the norm. The problem was I was going to be gone for the entire month of February. Now, in the middle of February, there is a holiday. Now, you understand this. It's not really a holiday. It's a marketing gimmick for the chocolatiers and the florists and the greeting card manufacturers. It is Valentine's Day, and it's in the middle of February. And I understand you have a Valentine's banquet coming up, and some of you young men, as Mr. Hankey said today, you're probably praying without ceasing right now, and we'll be praying that the Lord lets somebody say yes to you before it's time for that banquet. But I was going to be gone. And now, I, uh, I had never been apart from my daughter, Charity, on Valentine's Day in her entire life. And I had made a big deal out of Valentine's Day. And I was feeling very guilty about being gone for the first time in her life from on Valentine's Day. So I went to the store and I bought four gifts. Now, I bought four gifts for my daughter because I was going to miss Valentine's Day. And I felt guilty. I bought four exactly. Exactly, exact duplicate gifts for my wife because I'm not dumb. I bought four identical gifts for Kimberly and four identical gifts for Charity. I left and I left them all over the house and in the storage building and in the trailer. I hid them every night before I went to bed. I would write a poem. I would say, I write a poem in an email. And that poem would actually have directions so that when they woke up in the morning, they would open up the email. They would read the email. The two of them would decipher what the poem meant and find the gift that I had left for them on that particular day. One day they found each of them available with three roses in it. One day they found a beautiful little stuffed bear that I had left behind for them. One day they found a giant card that I'd hidden for each of them. And one day they each found a box of chocolates. But then one day in the middle of that, while they were sitting at the house, the, the email gave them no directions at all. It just told them to be ready at a certain time. At that time there was a knock at the door. They opened up the door and there stood a courier delivering a box of chocolate covered 
Stanford uh, strawberries for my wife and daughter. Now that one they had to share. So because I felt guilty, my wife and daughter didn't just have one Valentine's Day. They had five straight days of Valentine's Day. From that day until this, one of them every year asked me to leave town on Valentine's Day. (laughs) But you know, if you looked at those presents I left behind, you would have found that there is a recurring theme in all of them. The little stuffed bear that I told you about was holding in his little hand like this a little heart-shaped pillow that had the words, I love you, written on it. Those, those vases with the three roses in it, both of them had a little medallion, a metal medallion hand in, hanging there of a heart that had the words engraved on it, I love you. The cards were both covered outside and inside with little red hearts and the words on each of those hearts that said, I loved you. I love you. The strawberries were delivered in a heart-shaped box, and the chocolates were delivered in a heart-shaped box. Everything about it, in one way or another, had a heart on it. And so if you looked at those gifts that I left for my wife and my daughter, you would have come away with the conclusion that the heart is the symbol by which we tell someone how much we love them. That the heart is what we use to display compassion and to display emotion. But of course, that is not accurate. That's just something they made up along the way. If we brought a cardiologist in and set him down on the front row and asked him about the heart, he would give you a completely different story, wouldn't he? He would tell you that your heart is a muscle. It is an organ in your body that pumps blood out through your arteries and back through your veins. And if you live to be 80 years of age and have a normal heart rate, on your 80th birthday, listen to this, your heart will beat for the 3 billion, 300 millionth time on your 80th birthday. We certainly are fearfully and wonderfully made, are we not? If you were to ask a Disney executive to come in here and describe the heart to you, they would, of course, give you the wrong definition. They would tell you that your heart is what you follow when your evil stepmother and evil stepsisters are making you clean the house. And if you'll follow your heart, a handsome prince will show up and he will marry you and whisk you away to a palace in a foreign land and make you a princess. And then you'll complain about it and move back to the United States. No, that's a different story. That's a different story. I don't know how I got sidetracked on that. But they will tell you if you follow your heart, you'll be happy and you'll have everything that you ever want when the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? No, you don't follow your heart to find happiness. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he will give thee the desires of thy heart. Psalm 37 and verse 4. You follow the Lord, you'll find happiness. You follow the heart, you'll find deceit and, and wickedness. But still the truth is there's different definitions, different viewpoints about what the heart is. When you read it in the Old Testament though, the actual definition of the heart is so much different than all of those. As a matter of fact, it's actually even different than all of those put together. The heart, when you read about someone's heart in the Old Testament, it's not describing just their emotions. It's not describing that they love someone. It's not describing their goals or what they follow or their desires. And it's not even describing, for the most part, that organ inside your chest. What it's describing is the characteristics that make you, you. 
when the Bible describes someone's heart, when the Bible tells us in our passage that a man's heart is rejected, it's describing everything about him, his desires, his emotions, his characteristics, his goals, the things that he wants to do, the things that he doesn't want to do. It's all of that put together. It's the, the, when someone's heart is described, it's describing what makes that person the individual that they are. And every person in this room ought to be careful about our heart. In this passage of Scripture, we're going to read about two men that had two diametrically opposed hearts. They're antithetical of each other. They're polar opposites, if you will. One person is going to have a rejected heart. The other person is going to have the right heart. We're going to be told a secret, actually, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. When we read this, if we were there in the historical context, we would be hearing this for the first time. We're going to be told a secret in 1 Samuel chapter 16 about the eldest brother of David, a man by the name of Eliab. And then we're going to see that secret broadcast to the entire world in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look here in just a moment at one of the two most often quoted on social media verses in the Word of God. Or let me put it the right way, two verses that are so often misquoted on social media from the Word of God. We're going to see that the verse doesn't mean what they say it means. It doesn't mean anything close to what they say it means. As a matter of fact, it literally means the opposite of what everybody who posts it thinks that it means. As we look at this passage of Scripture, I want to ask you just one question. And we're going to keep our Bibles open in chapter 16 and then later in chapter 17. And I'm going to ask you to follow along with me. I'm going to ask you to put ourselves in the historical context, not just here in this auditorium. I'm going to ask you to look at this passage as if we were living through it as it takes place. But I want to ask you one question, and I want you to ask yourself this as we go through this. How's your heart? How's your heart stack up? See, the truth of the matter is, before we begin, most of us in this auditorium have a heart more like Eliab's than we'd ever wanted to admit that we have. And very few of us have a heart as much like David's as what we ought to have. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. Remember the historical context again. We've mentioned that a couple times. Saul has rebelled against the Lord. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 26. Samuel told him, Thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. He hath also rejected thee from reigning over Israel. And so King Saul, the first king chosen because of the rebellion of the children of Israel when they rejected the Lord. Remember what the Lord had said to Samuel. They have not rejected thee. But they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. They wanted a king to go before them and to judge them and to fight their battles. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And the Lord has allowed them to choose their own king. And they've chosen this man by the name of Saul, the son of Abiel, the son of Bacharach, the son of Kish, a mighty man whose dad was a mighty man of power. He's a choice young man and a goodly, but he's been a failure as a king. And now at the end of chapter 15, he has been rejected by Almighty God. And so as chapter 16 opens up, God is going to send Samuel to anoint the next king of the nation of Israel. A person whose name we're going to read about here in just a moment, but a person that we already know about from 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14. Look if you will at 1 Samuel 16 and we're going to begin reading in verse 1 and notice what the Bible says. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? 
If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Again, as far as the historical context, Samuel, King Saul, is over the armies of the nation of Israel. He is not over the worship of Jehovah in the nation of Israel. That, still, that job still belongs to Samuel. And when Samuel would come to a town, if he liked what he saw, he could bless that town, and they would receive the Lord's blessing from that day forward until the blessing was over. But if he walked in and saw wickedness in the town, he could curse that town and their crops wouldn't grow and God would curse that city and things would get pretty bleak. So that when Samuel shows up, the leaders of the town say, Ah, Samuel, comest thou peaceably? You can almost picture them with their fingers crossed behind their back, hoping that they're going to hear what they hear next. And notice what it says. And he and said, Comest thou peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. By the way, if you're going to read this the way most people intend for it to be read, you'd have to read it like this. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord... Three sniffs are required. I don't know if you knew that or not. I'm letting you know that. But the Lord only looks on the heart. We've been criticized over and over. Anytime you say something, preach something, post something that says something about getting dressed up to go to church, to putting on a tie or putting on a jacket or some old preacher says, I just like to go to church and see people wearing a jacket. All of a sudden, all the little posts underneath it are going to say something like this. Man, looketh on the outward appearance. God doesn't care about the outward appearance. He only cares about the heart. We'll have a word of prayer, then we'll get into the message, how's your heart? And I want you to ask yourself this question, how's your heart stack up to Eliab, and how's it stack up to David? Dear Lord, now Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for our time together in your house again. Lord, we ask that you bless the message tonight. Help us as we look at your word. Have your will and way in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice that this verse does not say, as I've mentioned, what they say it said. For this verse to say what they quote it as saying, it would have to go something like this. And Eliab walked in, and Samuel sat there in his wicked, legalistic, pharisaical, judgmental, fundamental heart. And he looked at Eliab and said, this man could never be the king of the nation of Israel. Look at him. He's wearing Hittite clothes. His shoes 
those were made by some Jebusite somewhere. And I don't like the fact that he's wearing Gibeonite hair. And so therefore, because I am a dyed-in-the-wool fundamentalist, and I hate everybody that isn't a dyed-in-the-wool fundamentalist, I have decided to reject Eliab as the next king of Israel because he doesn't look like me and he doesn't act like me and I'm a judgmental preacher. And the Lord said, Samuel, how dare you be so judgmental? How dare you only look on the outward appearance? Don't you know, Samuel, that the outward appearance only matters to you and the outward appearance doesn't matter at all to me. I only care about his heart. You realize that is not at all what this verse is saying? As a matter of fact, it's not even close to what this verse is saying. When Eliab walks in, Samuel looks at him and says, Wow, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. He looks at his outward appearance and says, He looks like a king. He walks like a king. He dresses like a king. I'm going to stand up right now and take this cruise of oil. I'm going to pour it over his head. I'm going to anoint him to be the next king of the nation of Israel. And God said, Hold on just a second. You are only looking on the outward appearance. You'll notice that Samuel is not criticized for looking on the outward appearance. Maybe you didn't know this. But do you know that's the only place a human being can look? I can't see your heart. And you can't see my heart. The only thing I can see is the outward appearance. And it's not that the Lord is saying the outward appearance doesn't matter. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light so shine before men so they may see your good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. We're supposed to be the salt and the light. The whole book of James is describing to us how our faith is in evidence to lost people and to a dying world so that they know there's a difference between us and them. The only place a lost person can look is on our outward appearance. Now, I do not for a moment, not for an instant, believe in what was originally termed lifestyle evangelism. But I believe this with all my heart. Your lifestyle better do some evangelizing. You better look unlike the world. You better act unlike the world. There ought to be a difference between us and the world. I'm not saying we need to wear burlap sacks and sit in in, in buildings with no lights on so we can be separate from the world. What I'm saying is man has to look on the outward appearance. That's the only place he can look. And our outward appearance better be different than the world's outward appearance. He also says this. He doesn't say uh, he doesn't say that the outward appearance doesn't matter, but he does say, "I can see the heart as well." You notice this verse is not saying the outward appearance doesn't matter. You know what it's saying is this: the outward appearance isn't enough. There are a few of us that have been alive long enough to remember a time in Bible-believing fundamental churches where your spirituality was completely gauged by all of the don'ts that you didn't do, all of the rules and regulations that you have. And if you had one more standard than someone else had, then you were obviously more spiritual than they were. That's more what this verse is criticizing. You can't look at someone's outward appearance because anybody can clean up the outward appearance for a little while. God says, you're looking on the outward appearance, Samuel. I understand that, but I'm looking on the heart and this guy's not going to be king. I want you to notice the rejected heart. 
Why is he rejected? Why is Eliab rejected? It's not because he looks bad. It's not because he dresses bad. It's not because he's doing anything that anybody would know. When the Lord says this to Samuel, you understand that Jesse didn't know this. David, his younger brother, didn't know this. Nobody in the room that hears that, that's there when Samuel's ready to anoint the next king of Israel. Nobody in the room when Eliab walked in said, well, here comes that rebel Eliab. We've had young people come to this college and sit in these very seats right here that on the outside looked every bit as righteous as anybody could possibly be. They dotted every I, they crossed every T, but their heart was rejected from the time they got here and they never got right with God and and some of them left here without even being saved. The truth of the matter is, Eliab looked great. Eliab looked like the kind of guy you'd have wanted for a king. But God said, no, no, I've rejected him. Don't you notice the first thing about this rejected heart of Eliab's? The rejected heart can be concealed. Samuel doesn't know. You realize Samuel isn't a rookie, right? Samuel didn't just fall off the turnip truck yesterday. He didn't just get his diploma and he's now started to preach. No, no, Samuel has been involved in the Lord's ministry, remember this, since he was a toddler. Samuel is now old. He's got grandchildren. Matter of fact, that's the reason the children of Israel came to him and complained. He said, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king. Samuel is now an old man that's been serving the Lord for 70 or 80 years. He's not some wet behind the ears rookie, but he couldn't tell by looking at the outward appearance that Eliab had a rejected heart. It can be concealed. Some of you have concealed it from your home church. You've concealed it from your professors. You've even concealed it from your family. But in your heart is a rejected heart beating just like Eliab's. And if you don't get it straightened out over the next little while, you're going to end up being on the ash heap of human history just like Eliab ends up. Notice carefully, please. The refused heart, the rejected heart can be concealed. It can be concealed from just about everybody. But by the way, let me point this out. And of course, we all already understand this. Whether we live by it or not, we understand that the rejected heart, although it can be concealed from most people, it can't be concealed from God. Neither is any creature is not manifest. Before him, for all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and verse 13 tells us. Uh, in, uh, oh, there's also Job chapter 26 and verse 6. Hell is naked before him and destruction hath no covering. So, uh, Proverbs 15 and verse 3. The eyes of the Lord in every place beholding the evil and the good. Psalm 1 and verse 6. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Job 34 and verse 21. For his eyes are upon the ways of man and he seeth all his going. You might think you've hidden it from everybody else, but you haven't hidden it from God. The rejected heart can be concealed. By the way, before this story is over, we're going to watch this rejected heart be revealed, are we not? You're going to watch as everybody who hears the most famous of all Bible accounts in the entire Old Testament, with the possible exception of Moses at the Red Sea, you're going to see that intertwined with that great story of David facing the giant Goliath, you're going to see the name Eliab plastered all over everything like it's on a neon sign billboard out in front of everybody. And you're going to read exactly what's going on in Eliab's heart for all the world to see forever. The rejected heart can be concealed. 
The rejected heart, number two, watch this, is cowardly. After this, you know what happens. Saul takes his armies and puts them in array. He puts them on one side of the valley of Elah. And the Philistines see that the Israelites have shown up. And they've shown up and placed their battle in array. We're going to put the Philistines back at the PA system. Because I think most of the time preachers would agree that it's the Philistines that work the PA system. All right? By the way, let me tell you something, preachers. The, the, uh, uh, the, the PA system guys, the guys that work back there, they're the only ones in an entire ministry that if they do their jobs perfectly, you never hear their name. The only time you hear about the PAs when they do something wrong or when some preacher's picking on them, all right? But the truth is, we're going to put them back there because they're facing this way. We're going to put the children of Israel in the, in the choir loft tonight, all right? So we can be right there. You're down there in the valley of Elah even as we speak. So here are the two armies that are together. Saul has conscripted the army together. He's called up Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah, David's three eldest brothers, to be a part of the army. But before the battle can begin, you know how the story goes. A giant comes down in the valley and begins to blaspheme Jehovah God. He blasphemes God for 40 days. He challenges the children of Israel. Send you a man to fight me. If he defeat me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I defeat him and kill him, then shall you be our servants and serve us. And he says, I defy the God of Israel. That's what we're always told that he says. Finally, after 40 days, David shows up and you know how the story unfolds. He goes down in the valley and stands toe-to-toe with the giant and defeats him with one stone from his sling and Goliath's own sword. And we know the story so well. Do you know there's something that we hear all the time and even say all the time that I just said right there that isn't in your Bible? You know what you can't find? You can't find a verse that tells us that Goliath blasphemed God. You said, Brother Harper, wait a minute, everybody always says it. I know everybody always says it, and I don't mean to make anybody mad. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible doesn't say it, and I think that's more important than what the Bible storybooks and the, the commentator writers have to say. Let's read it, if you will. Go over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. The battle is going on. Goliath shows up. We'll start in verse 4. Notice how Goliath is introduced to us right here. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of his, uh, the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass, and he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to God? I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. It says, ye servants to Saul. To me, the scariest part of this story for a child of God is that the children of Israel had asked for a king to fight their battles. And now they have a king that's supposed to fight their battles. And they're going to spend 40 days being humiliated because God let them have what they thought they wanted. Okay, Brother Harper, I know that first thing doesn't say anything about God, but I know he's going to say something in just a moment. And you servants to Saul, let's go back and read it now. Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. What if I prevail against him and kill him? Then shall you be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the God of Israel. No, I'm sorry. That's not what it says. I defy the armies of Israel this day. 
give me a man that we may fight together. In verse 23, the Bible tells us that he spake according to the same words. Forty days in a row, Goliath said the same thing. Even when David confronts him, he says, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away this reproach from Israel? For he is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. I'm here to tell you, I don't find Goliath blaspheming in this passage of Scripture. I'm not saying he was a good man. I'm not saying he did anything right at all. I'm saying that he stood up and defied the armies of Israel because the armies of Israel were now headed by a man that didn't scare him. There he stands and he makes this challenge. He offers this up. By the way, I don't know how, how many of you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And this might be embarrassing for you. It's, it probably would be embarrassing for me if I were you, but my hand's going to be up. How many of you, over the course of your life, did someone, some adult somewhere, ever label you as a smart aleck? You ever heard that term? Raise your hand. I, I thought there would be a few of us. I was one of those, all right? I was. Now, I will tell you this. Here's the good news. When you're 21, 22, and 23... And you say something, someone might say that you're a a smart aleck. When you get to be in your 50s, you're just sarcastic, okay? It all gets better after you get a certain age. No one thinks I'm a smart aleck now. They They think I'm a little bit sarcastic or a little ironic, whatever. They go by that now, so I don't get called a smart aleck anymore. I'm the same guy I was when I was a teenager. I'm still just as distracted and still just as much ADD and all that's still going on. But the fact is, with age comes the disappearance of the term smart aleck. But when I was a teenager, sometimes I would think of a question in Sunday school class and I didn't want to ask the question because if I asked the question, I knew that the Sunday school teacher was going to call my mom or get my mom and dad after the service and tell me, tell them that their son was being a smart aleck again. I wasn't being a smart aleck. I just asked, I wanted to ask a question. And I've always, always, until I got older and was able to ask it from a pulpit, I've always had the same question about this passage of Scripture. When did the children of Israel decide that Goliath was in charge of their army? Did you ever think about that? Here the children of Israel all appear in camp, ready to go to battle. The Philistines all back there in camp, ready to go to battle. Here comes Goliath and he says, Hey, send me one man. And the children of Israel said, Oh no, we can only send one. He said one man, and of course he's in charge, so we can't send five men. What was to prevent the children of Israel from sending 500 men down there with swords and spears and chopping Goliath down into little tiny pieces? What was to prevent them from putting a thousand archers on the hillside and shoot arrows into Goliath and kill him right then and there? When did they vote Goliath in as the king of the nation of Israel? The simple truth of it is Goliath was never in charge of the children of Israel and Goliath isn't in charge of the church of Jesus Christ today either and we act like he is. We act like the world, the flesh, and the devil is in charge of what the church is supposed to do and we're so busy trying to conform ourselves so it doesn't offend anybody in the world that we've forgotten that we're supposed to offend the world. Goliath makes his challenge. The children of Israel wonder what to do. Notice what it says right after that, please. And remember, Abinadab and Shaman, Eliab are there. And uh, look at verse 11. And when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. See, the rejected heart is not just concealed, but the rejected heart, number two, is cowardly. 
You'll notice that Eliab will not stand up for the armies of Israel. This is their hated enemy, the Philistine, standing down there challenging them to send somebody to fight him. Don't you think there ought to have been enough patriotism in the life of Eliab that he said, hold on just a minute, I am an Israeli soldier and you're not going to say those things about the nation of Israel. I'm going to come down there and I might not win, but you're going to know you were in a battle. But that's not what he does. Eliab won't stand up for the armies of the Lord. He won't stand up against the armies of the, of the devil, will he? This is the Philistines. Now you could understand, maybe, Eliab sitting there if some Hittite were standing down there running his mouth or some Jebusite was down there talking some trash, if you will. But this is a Philistine. These are their hated enemies. They don't like the Philistines at all. They have nothing in common with the Philistines. They've always hated each other. You would think he would say, now listen, I know that giant is bigger than I am. I know that I might lose this battle, but he's a Philistine and I'm not going to let him say what he's saying about the nation of Israel. No. He wouldn't stand up for the armies of the Lord. He wouldn't stand up against the armies of the wicked one. As a matter of fact, in this whole story, Eliab is only willing to stand up to one person in the entire book. And that's his little brother. His baby brother, if you will. I have a little brother. I cannot call him anymore my baby brother. I am contractually obligated never to call him my baby brother. There is a little bit of, of, of dismissiveness when you call a grown man a baby brother. And I used to call him that all the time. He graduated from here a few years ago. He's pastoring. I mentioned him last night. He's pastoring in uh, Hampton, Virginia. And I used to call him my baby brother all the time. There's 12 years between us. But one time we walked into a church. He was going with me. I was going to preach and we walked in. Somebody looked at me and looked at him and they said, Brother Harper, is this your son? So we made an agreement on that very day. I would stop calling him my baby brother as long as he never calls me daddy. How about that? But I will tell you this. Just like uh, Eliab's only willing to pick on one person, he's only willing to stand up to one person, that's his baby brother, there's something fun about picking on your littlest brother, isn't there? How many of you are the oldest sibling? Raise your hand, hold it high in the air. Do you know why you're the oldest sibling? Because God put you here a few years early so you'd learn how to pick on your brothers and sisters. That's why you're here. I love to pick on my little brother. He called me up one time and he said he preached here at, at chapel. And he said, you know, he calls me Rick, by the way. None of you better do that. But he calls me Rick. He says, Rick, he said, I preached at chapel today. And every time I preach at Ambassador, somebody comes up to me and tells me I remind them of you. And I said, that's funny. No one's ever told me I remind them of you. <laughs> It's happened to him over and over and over in his life. On the date that he was installed to be the pastor at First Calvary Baptist Church, his pastor from West Virginia went down and was, uh, was preaching and said this. He said, I'm so excited to preach the first service of Richard Harper's new pastorate. I wasn't even there. I was a thousand miles away and somebody still confused him with me. And I enjoy that every time it happens. The only person in this entire story that Eliab's willing to stand up to is his baby brother. He's not willing to stand up for the armies of the Lord. He's not willing to stand up against the armies of the wicked. He's a coward. And the only person he's willing to stand up to is his baby brother. By the way, we have a whole lot of cowards, don't we? 
You're one of those people that you would never go to someone against whom you have ought and confront them like you're supposed to do in the Bible. You'd rather just talk about them behind their back. You'd rather just criticize. You'd rather just post things on Facebook. By the way, that always cracks me up when people try to post things on Facebook as if it offers them some kind of anonymity and they forget that their name is on their Facebook page. We have a whole lot of cowards, don't we? If you have a problem, do what the Bible says. Notice Eliab, this rejected heart. We already know that. Before this takes place, we've already read it. We've already been involved. We already listened to him whisper in the ears of Samuel that Eliab's heart has been rejected. It's been rejected and it's, it's been concealed from everybody. And he's also been cowardly. But he's also, number three, watch this, critical. Finally, David shows up. His father, Jesse, sends him to see how the battle goes. Now, remember this. They did not have embedded reporters. They didn't have satellite television. The armies of Israel went away to battle 40 days ago against their hated adversaries, the armies of the Philistines. No one has heard an update. Jesse does not know if his three sons are still alive. He doesn't know if the battle has been won or the battle has been lost. He has no idea what's been going on. And he says to his son, go and see how thy brethren fare. Go and see the battle. David shows up. You know the verses. Skip over to verse 22 with me, please. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. As he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. Let me point this out before we go any farther. This is the first time David has heard these words. Everybody else has heard it for 40 days. Even those soldiers that it bothered when they heard it the first time have now become used to it. By the way, Christian, the first time... Sin might bother you. You do it for 40 days in a row, it's going to become human nature. They become used to it. David hears it for the first time, and David doesn't like what he hears. Notice what happens. And by the way, David's going to ask a question, and the way it is in our Bibles, you're going to read the question after you read the answer. So let's look at what it says. Let's, let's skip down just for a second for the sake of the, the time and look at verse 26. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, it's then going to tell us to look back at the answer that they've already given. So here's what the answer is. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. Verse 25, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he, is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then in verse 27, it tells us again that they answered David's question that way. And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. David has just asked a question. He's not criticized a single person. He's not uh, leveled any of his own ideas. Well, if I were king or if I were in the army, I would do it this way. That's not what he's done. All David said is, why isn't somebody going down there and killing this guy? Notice David doesn't say, why isn't someone going down there and trying really hard? What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine? See, David knows the outcome before it ever started. Notice what happens. Now Eliab's going to speak up. Eliab's finally upset. 
And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto them, unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Isn't that kind of funny to me? His anger was kindled against David, but it never says his anger was ever kindled against Goliath. Defy the armies of Israel all you want, but don't you dare talk about the Lord God. That'll make your big brother mad. Notice what he said. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride or the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. I want you to notice the rejected heart is concealed. The rejected heart is cowardly. But the rejected heart, number three, is critical. Notice the three criticisms. First, he diminishes David's responsibilities while shirking his own. David's nothing but a little shepherd boy who is keeping those few sheep in the wilderness. David, you're nothing and I'm a somebody. I've seen over the years that happen multiple occasions. Someone who pastors a church a little bit bigger than someone else's church that thinks all of a sudden they have every answer to every question anywhere in the entire world and anybody else is beneath them. It's about time we put away that kind of attitude in fundamentalism, isn't it? By the way, don't you hear this from uh, former church members that used to come to church? You, you go home to your, uh, to your home church. Some of you just came back just a, a couple days ago. And while you were home, you said, well, listen, you went and saw a friend of yours that you grew up with. And you said, listen, we're having a, a special service on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or something like that. Sure, would like to have, to have you come. And they looked at you and they said this. Well, I'm not going to that church anymore. That church is filled with hypocrites. Don't you love that? Can I just say this? And I've preached in over a thousand churches now. And I can say this is true of every church I've ever preached in. Every church is filled with hypocrites. This college is filled with hypocrites. This platform is filled with hypocrites. Not one single person in this auditorium is exactly all the time, every place we go, exactly what we ought to be or claim to be. We all have a little bit of hypocrisy in us. But isn't it funny that a man would say, I'm not going to that church because it's filled with hypocrites when there is no better place in the entire world for a group of hypocrites to go than church. Yes, it's a group of hypocrites right here in this auditorium. You know what we're striving to do? To be less of a hypocrite tomorrow than we were today. And here you are, not darkening the doors of a church house because you think someone else is a hypocrite. I'm sorry, you're wearing a tag on your forehead that announces to the world that you're the biggest hypocrite in the room while you sit back in judgment of everybody else that you think is a hypocrite. He diminishes David's responsibilities while shirking his own. Not only that, notice what else he does. He assumes that David has the same heart that he does. Now here's what we know. When you read this passage of Scripture, you know two things that have already been recorded in Scripture. In 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, we know Eliab's heart has been rejected by the Lord. The Lord rejected him because he saw his heart. We also know in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14, before we ever read the name David, that the Bible has already described him before it introduced us to him this way. The Lord has sought for him a man after his own Heart. You know, I already know that Eliab's heart is rejected. We already know that David's heart is right. But what does Eliab say? Well, I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. You ever notice this, Christian? That when you're in sin, you think everybody else is sinning just like you are? 
When you cheat on a term paper, it's because you're under the impression that everybody else is cheating. When you lie, when you exaggerate, it's because, oh, everybody's doing it. Do we not project on others our own iniquity? Is that not exactly what Eliab is doing here? We know Eliab's heart has been rejected. We know that David's heart is right. And yet here is Eliab criticizing David for his naughty heart. There's a third criticism. He thinks he knows David's motives. You came just to see the battle. David's not there just to see the battle. If he'd wanted to see the battle, he'd have come over 32 days ago. He's there because his father sent him. He's there because he left the sheep with the keeper. He's there because he has sack lunches for his brothers and cheeses for the captains. He's there for all of those reasons. But Eliab is quick to pin on David motivations. Let me point something out about motivations. You do not know my motivations and I do not know your motivations. I cannot stand up and tell you that why you're doing... I can't know the why you're doing something. I can tell you from this book right here, if you're doing something that this book says is sin, that it's a sin. And even if you do it with the best of intentions, it won't make it right. I've seen so many preachers go off the deep end, go in the wrong direction, change their entire ministry because they blame the Lord every single time. Well, the Lord led me to do it. The Lord's not going to lead you contrary to His Word. It doesn't happen. And then people will say, well, I don't know why He did that, but I think He means well. Listen carefully, and I don't mean to be ugly. I don't care that He means well. If it's sin, it's sin even if he's doing it for the absolute best of reasons. Pragmatism has no place in the house of God in the service of the Lord. By the way, if he's doing something right, it's still right. I'm not the judge of that. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the fire shall declare every man's work of what sort it is. If you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, God will judge that. That's not my job to judge that. I can only judge actions. I can guess at your motivations. I don't know if you've realized this or not. We get in a lot of trouble when we guess. Here's the truth. Eliab has a rejected heart. It's concealed, but now we read it in front of everybody, do we not? Now we know exactly what Eliab is. We hear Eliab criticizing David and never standing up to Goliath. It's not hard to see which side Eliab is on, is it? It's concealed, but it was revealed. It's critical and it's cowardly. How many of us are like that? You criticize everything that goes on. Every single professor you have, you're ready to criticize them. Every single day that something doesn't go your way, you're ready to jump on the critical bandwagon. Some of you are cowardly critics. Listen, it's time to put that all aside and decide that you're going to have a semester where you're not anything like Eliab at all. On the other side, we have David. and We'll cover this quickly and be done. David has the right heart. We already know that from 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14. So let's look at a few things about the right heart. The first thing we see about the right heart is that it's a Christ-like heart. Wouldn't it be great if David did a podcast? David is the only person in the Word of God referred to as the man after God's own heart. What a compliment. What a title. Wouldn't it be great if we could read some articles that he's written? Maybe get a daily blog post from him or something like that. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could be Twitter, uh, Twitter friends with, uh, with old David and see what he tweets every single day about being a man after God's own heart? Wouldn't that be great if he somehow had left something for us that we could read or study about his heart? Oh, 
I think he left a few psalms that say some things about his heart, doesn't he? See, the right heart that David has is Christ-like. You'll see some things that David said about his own heart. And these are just from psalms that David, of which David was the human penman. I want you to notice David said that one, one thing he says about his heart a lot of times is that he had a singing heart. Now, most of you know that I do not have a great singing voice. If you sat next to me, you know it better than most people know it. I like to sing. I love to be a part of a song service, but no one is asking me to make any recordings. All right, it's just not going to happen. And maybe you have a voice like that. My son-in-law, Micah Still, is a wonderful son-in-law, but he has about the worst singing voice you've ever heard. My wife was telling me just the other day was her, her 29th birthday. And so she was telling me that Micah and Charity called and sang happy birthday to her. And she, basically he's the only person she's ever heard sing happy birthday off key. It's kind of just bad. He's a great son-in-law, but he eats like a three-year-old and he can't sing. Those are the only two things I would change. He eats chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese. He hates vegetables. I'm kind of with him on that. He hates fruit. I'm not with him on that. Listen to this. Now, please, try not to audibly react when I say this. He hates chocolate. Can you imagine that? His idea of candy is those pixie sticks. That's it. That's just messed up. And he eats dry Cheerios. You ever been in a restaurant and a lady comes in and she's got nine children and she puts them all down and there's that one 14-month-old sitting there in the high chair that wants to scream and cry the whole time? What does she put on the high chair for that 14-month-old to stop crying? Dry Cheerios. He eats like a child. But you might have a singing voice like Micah's. You might have a singing voice so bad that when you're in the shower singing, cats fighting in the alleyway stop and knock on the door and ask you to stop. (laughs) But if you have a heart after God's own heart, you're going to have a song in there. People might not want to hear your song, but there's going to be a song in there. When you read some of those hymns that we've been singing, there's a song in there. You might take a whole row and make them off key because you can't sing, but there ought to be a song in there. Didn't David say that? Psalm 4 in verse 7, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than the times that their corn and their wine increased. Psalm 13 in verse 5, I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Psalm 108 in verse 1, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise even with all my glory. David said this over and over. He said, there's a song in my heart. You want to have a heart like God's own heart? Better be a song in there. You should have a singing heart. Not only should you have a singing heart, you need to have a surrendered heart. Didn't David say this in Psalm 19 in verse 14? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Not just everything I say, Lord, but everything that I am. I want it to be acceptable in your sight. I want to put every single part of my being and make it completely surrender to you. That's how you get called a man after God's own heart. He had a singing heart. He had a surrendered heart. He had a short heart. David wasn't one of those that was afraid of what the world was going to do to him. Remember Psalm 27 and verse 3 when he said, Though an host should encamp against me, my heart will not fear. 
Psalm 61 and verse 2, when he talked about being a little bit afraid, he said, from the end of the earth will I cry unto thee, when my heart is overwhelmed, (laughs) lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Listen, Christian, we spend a little bit too much time being afraid of what the world has to offer when the one that fights on our side isn't afraid of the world at all. He had a singing heart, a surrendered heart. He had a sure heart. He also had this. He had a sorry heart. Do you know, I've, I've tried to find, I've read lots of books about it and everything, trying to find different people and their suppositions as to why David is called a man after God's own heart. This is the best conclusion to which I can come. I believe it's because no one in the entire word of God ever confessed sin as openly and honestly as David did. Remember after he numbered the people, he says, Is it not I, O Lord, that, uh, that, uh, that did this thing and have done this evil in thy sight? Let me ask you something. When's the last time you and I described ourselves as evil? We describe the world as evil. We describe some of the things we see on television and on the news as evil. We describe Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden as evil. But you notice that David doesn't say it's everybody else's fault and the whole world is evil. David says, no, no, I am evil. What did he say? In his great prayer of confession in Psalm 51, he said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this, what again? Evil in thy sight. You and I are way too quick to give cute names to our sin. We don't lie, we exaggerate. We we have cute little names. You don't get mad, you get upset. You don't gossip, you just tell it like it is. We have cute names for our sins, don't we? David didn't have cute names for his sins. David said, my sins are evil. When you and I remember that our sins are evil, that'll make it a whole lot easier to confess them. He had a singing heart, a sure heart, a sorry heart. He had a surrendered heart. He also had a submissive heart. Psalm 40 and verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O God. Thy law is within my heart. See, the right heart is Christ-like. It's singing, it's sure, it's sorry, it's surrendered. Notice number two, the right heart is not just Christ-like. The right heart is also concerned. Here's here's Goliath walking up. And once again, you have to picture this story with me, if you will. And by the way, there are a couple parts of this story that are actually rather humorous. And I just want to give you complete permission right now. It's okay to actually laugh in the house of God. Not a problem with that at all. Here's Goliath, once again, offering his 40 days of challenge. And David says, what shall be done? To the man that killeth this Philistine, taketh away this reproach from Israel. What's, what's going to happen to the guy who goes down there and kills this guy? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? David's concerned. Nobody else is concerned. Everybody else is more concerned with Goliath. Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel has he come up. They're more afraid of Goliath than they are Jehovah God. David's concerned about this. Hey, who gets to kill the giant today? David doesn't know if there have been 40 giants over the last 39 giants over the last 39 days and there are 39 giant corpses laying down there in the valley. David doesn't know. All he knows is this. This guy is down there saying things he shouldn't say. Who gets to kill him? 
Notice he's concerned. Not only is he concerned, but I want you to notice that the right heart is Christ-like. The right heart is concerned. The right heart, number three, is also convicting. Then Eliab gives him all of his criticisms. And David's response is one of those verses that is preached all the time in, uh, from the Word of God. And it preached, excuse me for putting it this way, incorrectly all the time from the Word of God. David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? If you've been in churches for very long, you've heard a message on, is there not a cause? There's a cause to go soul winning. There's a cause to go to church. There's a cause to read your Bible. You've heard all kinds of messages like that. But let's put ourselves in the setting. There is David in this tent with all of these soldiers who have been cowering in fear for 40 days. Here comes Goliath and makes his challenge. Send me a man. I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And David is criticized by Eliab. And David says, what I do? Is there not a cause? Didn't you hear it? Didn't you hear him stand there and challenge the armies of the living God? Didn't you hear this uncircumcised Philistine? Don't you think those other men that are standing around for the first time in 40 days start to feel a little bit convicted by this young 17-year-old shepherd boy? Don't you think it starts to bother them a little bit that it doesn't bother them anymore that Goliath is still challenging them? Don't you think that if David gave an invitation, there might have been one or two of them that got right with God. And I'm not saying they'd have gone down in the valley. But they've become accustomed to what Goliath has said. And now they hear David with that question. Is there not a cause? Why aren't you upset, Eliab? Why aren't all these guys mad at what Goliath is saying? I know I am, David says. Notice the right heart. The right heart is Christ-like. The right heart is concerned. The right heart is convicting. But the right heart is also courageous. I love verse 32. Verse 32, David says something that, that, that to, to me, if you didn't know David, if you didn't know the story, and we have the luxury of hindsight at looking back at it, but when David says this, a 17-year-old unbearded shepherd boy with no armor, no sword, no shield, no spear, nothing, just a bag and two pieces of leather attached to a little pouch. <laughs> That's all he's got. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. <laughs> Do you think King Saul said, Phew. Great, an unarmed 17-year-old shepherd boy is going to take care of it for me. You know what David literally says? I mean, in modern day vernacular, he says, Your Highness, just chill. And then he says, I got this. <laughs> Don't worry, your highness. Don't let your heart fail. I'll go kill him for you. Do you think Saul is sitting there saying, whew, we're finally going to win? The right heart, lastly, is courageous. Now, David, finally, after you know the, about the armor and he hadn't proved it and he takes it off. So David walks out of the camp of the children of Israel up here in the choir loft. Do you think that the children of Israel, when they saw an unarmed... You see, Brother Harper, he's not unarmed. He has a sling. Yes, he does have a sling. But he doesn't have any rocks for his sling. Remember, he got the rocks down in the, in the riverbed in the creek there at the, at the, in the Valley of Eli. He reached down in there. That's where he got in the brook is where he got the five stones. He walks out with a sling with no rocks in it. Do you think the members of the army of Israel said, Oh, 
goody. A teenager is going to solve our problems. By the way, if you have problems with your iPhone, a teenager is probably the best person. But when it comes to fighting in the valley against a giant of a man, a teenager is not your first choice. Do you think the children of Israel said, Whew, I'm glad we got a shepherd boy to go down there and fight Goliath. See, we, we sometimes fail to remember that this isn't just a battle to see if David can beat Goliath or Goliath can beat David. The freedom of everybody in the choir loft is on the line. If David loses, the children of Israel are supposed to surrender to the Philistines. Do you think the Philistines back there at the PA, when they see David walk out, you can almost see them looking. One of them says, oh, here comes somebody. Is it, is, did they get somebody from the Hittites? No, no. The Egyptians? No, no. It's a, it, look, it, it looks like it's a, ki- it's a teenager. Do you think the Philistines went, oh, no. We're in so much trouble now. It's hopeless. They've sent a teenager to defeat our giant. Do you think, don't you think that the children of Israel are packing? Oh, no, Brother Harper, they would have had faith. No, they didn't have any faith. Not a one of them had any faith. Remember what the king has offered them? A cash reward, a tax-free life for the remainder of the nation of Israel and marriage into the royal family if you go down there and fight the giant. If they believed that God was going to let them beat the giant, they would have already gone down there. Nobody believes that David can win. Nobody in that army, nobody in this army, nobody anywhere believes that David can win this victory. And when you understand that, it changes the whole story a little bit, doesn't it? David walks out, stops. Can you imagine the murmuring that goes on? When he walks down into that valley and he reaches down and starts pulling out those five stones... And somebody says, he didn't even have any rocks when he left? (laughs) David walks up to Goliath. And once again, there's some comedy here, I think. There's some things that we read it now are are pretty funny. Look, if you will, verse 41. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bared the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. You notice only two people in this whole passage disdained David. Goliath and Eliab kind of tells you why he was rejected, doesn't it? Disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. The Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David, watch this, by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh into the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Now remember this. I have to pause and say this and remind you of this. When we read this now in 2022, this is one of the most motivational passages of Scripture. This will make the hairs on your arms stand up when David stands down there and speaks because we know how it ends. If you're in that army or you're in this army, you don't believe a word that David says. Notice what David says. And at first, you almost feel an entire collective duh going on from the armies of the Philistines. What do you mean, Brother Harper? Look what he says. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. Doesn't everybody that goes into battle come with a sword and a spear and a shield? Can't you hear all the people of Israel going, Yeah? Of course he came with a sword and a spear and a shield. Wouldn't that prompt you to ask the question, why don't you have one, David? 
but I come to thee in the name of the Lord. Uh, notice what he says. And I, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee, take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcass, carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day into the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I'm here to tell you something. Even though we're trying to put ourselves in that historical context and not understand just how awesome a speech this is, you can't get away from how wonderful this is. The faith of David should make every single person in this room have weak knees. But notice he says a couple of things. He says, first, I'm going to kill you. Don't you love that? Do you think a collective sigh in the Philistine army went on when they all said, oh, no, the kid with the rocks is going to kill our giant. Do you think the children of Israel said, David, David, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. Do you think they're cheering for him? Do you think they're excited about this? They don't believe God is going to be victorious here. If they did, they'd already be married into the king's family. But notice, David says this. He says, first I'm going to kill you, then I'm going to cut your head off. Now, I love how the Bible makes sure that you and I know that David doesn't have a sword and actually will remind us later that David had no sword. How does David intend to cut the head off of Goliath? Is he some secret martial arts expert that we don't know about? Is David a karate guy? Does he know Kung Fu? Is he, is he friends with Bruce Lee? By the way, you know what Bruce Lee's favorite drink was? Water. Sorry. <laughs> David says, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to cut your head off. Then he says, then I'm going to kill all y'all. And excuse the southern y'all, okay? I'm going to kill all y'all. Remember when I was in first grade, my dad was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas. We lived in a little tiny house in a town called Killeen. There were only two bedrooms. One was my mom and dad's bedroom. The other one was basically the size of an average larger walk-in closet. My sister and I, I was five and she was three. We actually had to share a bedroom at that time. And if you've ever shared a bedroom with a sibling... You know, sometimes late at night, things get funny. And you start giggling and everything's funny. And my dad would be downstairs. My dad was a brown belt in karate and spent the last four of his 20 years uh, in the U.S. Army as a drill sergeant and served two tours in Vietnam. He was a relatively tough individual. My dad would be sitting downstairs and tired. And instead of going to sleep, we're upstairs playing. My dad would yell up the steps. All right, kids, time to go to bed. And we would get quiet for 10 or 12 seconds. And then start laughing again. Then he would say, all right, I'm going to wake you up early in the morning. You better get some sleep. And we would get tired again. But then, after some more laughing, you could hear Dad get up out of his chair. You could hear his heavy footsteps as he walked across the living room floor. And you could hear as he put one foot on the bottom step. And you could picture him with his hand on the banister. And he said these words, don't make me come up there. Do you realize once dad said that, nothing was ever funny again? <laughs> Isn't that what David just said? First, Goliath, let me tell you how this is going to go. I'm going to kill you. And then after I kill you, I'm going to cut your head off. And then after I cut your head off, I'm coming up there. And I'm going to kill every last one of you guys. Do you think the Philistines said, oh, no, 
he'll have four more rocks. What do we do? Do you think the children of Israel said, it's about time, David. Great job. You're doing wonderful, David. You tell him what for. No, the Philistines are packing their bags and hoping they get adopted by a good Philistine family in a couple of minutes. The battle begins. It's one of those battles that doesn't take up much time. Your preachers all the, way, all the time want to preach message on the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon takes a verse, one verse in your Bible. It's over. It's done. It was never, it was never, uh, the outcome was never in dispute, just like this outcome isn't in dispute. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the de- battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone, now watch this carefully, and slung it. There can be no question whatsoever that David was a West Virginia mountaineer. It did not say he slung it. It didn't say he has done been slunging it. He doesn't say anything like that. It says he slung it. That's what a West Virginian would say. If it said that he washed it, before he slang it, you would know he was from the, uh, the hills of West Virginia. Because West Virginia, my father-in-law washes his clothes if he's going to Washington, D.C. I don't know why there's an R in the word wash, but he's in there. Anyway, he took the stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sunk in his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. David fell over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. Don't you love this? But there was no sword in the hand of David. Don't you love how the Lord reminds us of that? Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off, the head of the, uh, the, cut off his head therewith. And when, the, and, and when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Can you picture the Philistine army? There's Goliath laying face down with his head off. David, like this, with his foot on the chest of Goliath and Goliath's head over his head like this. And the Philistines said, uh, he said he was going to kill the giant, and he killed him. said he was going to cut his head off, even though he didn't have a sword, and he cut his head off. And then he said he was coming up here. Uh-oh. They fled. From whom are they fleeing? Oh, Brother Harper, they're fleeing from the armies of the nation of Israel. No, they're not. Read the next verse. What does it say next? And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. They weren't running from the armies of Israel. They weren't running from a great warrior. They weren't running from a man who had more armament. He does no, not at this point still have a sword or a spear or a shield. The only sword he has is the sword of Goliath, which if you read the size of Goliath's armaments, it's going to be too big for David to use very well. All David has, he's still a 17-year-old, unbearded shepherd boy with four rocks in a bag. And the entire Philistine army got up and ran. They aren't running from a warrior. They aren't running from some stones. They aren't running from a spear. They're running from one servant of Almighty God who has the right heart. I'm here to tell you something, Christian. You have a heart like David's had, David had. You have a heart after God's own heart. The world will still tremble at our shout. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. This is not something that we're hoping to pull out of victory. This is something that we've already won. We're already victorious in the world. Ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's already over. Let's stop being like Eliab. 
Here's the truth and we're done. Most of us have a heart more like Eliab's than it ought to be. And I would dare say that almost every one of us has a heart less like David than we ought to have. How's your heart tonight?